0: Romans chapter 8, I left you last week with a question. Do you remember the question? 8 o'clock didn't do much better, so don't feel bad about yourself. Um, I Googled, I Googled um, greatest questions of all time this week. Very first uh, response to the question was 101 um, greatest questions of all time. Some news agency in, in England um, produced it. It might explain the oddness of it, but... Um, I was really confused, and here's how I read it. The first question on the list was, can germs catch germs? And I thought, wait a minute, these are supposed to be the greatest questions of all time. I thought, well, maybe I got the 101 upside down, I'll read the last one and see if that should be the first one, and the last one was, uh, does cheese give you nightmares? And I thought, well, I'm clearly (laughs) reading the wrong list, because that doesn't seem to be very deep to me. Um, in fact, I think, I think the question I left you with last week could be one of the greatest questions anybody ever would deal with. Are you a Christian or not? In essence, uh, nothing could matter more to us. If God is who he says he is, if he came in the person of Jesus like he said he did, if all the scriptures are true and the gospels are right, there is something to be decided. You know, I just got done singing a song, I've decided to follow Jesus, no turning back. Now that, that is a confession, It's easy to say, it's a whole other matter to have it proved out in your life. And we're in a section in Romans chapter 8 where um, Paul is talking about the contrast and the compare between those who he says are in the flesh and those who are in the spirit. Those people who uh, live according to that kind uh, kind of life. And I made it really clear last week that there are only, in essence, two types of people in the world, Christians who struggle with sin and everybody else. Okay, And I think that's Paul's argument in chapter 7 of Romans, and here we are in chapter 8, him giving the the church a glimpse of the differences between the two. And we kind of took a a little moment to talk about the characteristics of an unbeliever's life and heart and thoughts. And so as Paul deals in chapter 8, verse 5 through verse 8, he talks about the thinking of the unbeliever, that their mind is um, on the things of the flesh. Now, that's code for sin, (laughs) If you're new to this, this uh, study together, then Paul is just talking about sin. And there are two types of sin in this world, the kind that everyone obviously can see, the gory sins, you know, the, the murder and the strife and the anger and the brokenness and the, all that junk. And then there's the, the not so obvious sin, the obscure stuff, the moral stuff. As far as God's concerned, if if people on their own try to merit God's attention by some kind of life, behavior, religion, God sees that as sin, and yet that's what the flesh can do. It can either pursue its own dreams and desires or think that it can do things to merit God's attention. It's all sin, and that's the thinking of the flesh. That's what it can do. We also talked about the condition of the heart of the unbeliever. Paul says it's dead. It's dead. That's just another way of saying it's unresponsive. It can't perceive the things of God. It doesn't understand anything about it. in fact, the scripture tells us to those who are perishing, everything we're looking at today is foolishness because it needs the Holy Spirit's action in the heart to discern it so it can't even be understood. We also saw that uh, the religion is themselves, these people make up standards and practices and belief systems that make them feel safe and comfortable. So they can write off a God who is holy or a God who is a judge. They write into a God that's more tolerant and accepting of the life they choose. And so they create their own style, their own religion. The unbeliever heart also, um, according to Paul, has actions that all they can do is displease God. God sees us exactly how we are and who we are. He sees the motives of why we do what we do, and we all come up short. Filthy rags is what Isaiah would say, is how God sees all of our actions. We saw the, the comparison to the unbeliever's life, the fact that he thinks differently. Their thinking is on what Christ has done, which blows up religion, by the way, blows up some kind of mental ascent, like if I do these things and don't do those things or think these things, whatever, this is what a believer does. He trusts that what God has said about his condition in his heart is so grave and so desperate that there's only one solution, and it's Jesus, right? And his righteousness applied to us. That's the only hope that, that man has in the world. So that's the thinking of, of a believer's heart. And the conclusion is totally the opposite of the conclusion for an unbeliever. Where the unbeliever is dead, unresponsive, Paul says the believer has life and peace. So the word like awake, we're awake to things of God. We're awake to worship. We're awake to service. We're awake, not because we're we're absolutely hopeful that God will notice us and like us more because of it. No, those are the natural expressions of affections that God does in our life by faith, okay? So we've seen those two uh, comparisons, at least last week we did, and we asked this very simple question, which are you? And uh, I, I assume that some of you left afraid or scared of the question, because if you stand in front of your spiritual mirror long enough, maybe the conclusion is that you're not so certain. And, and I want you to understand something, that, that to ask the question isn't a bad idea. Over and over again, the Scriptures tell us to examine. In fact, Peter says in 1 Peter chapter 1, brothers, be all the more diligent to confirm your calling and election. So the point of what we do as Christians is look at our life and see the marks of God in it. Is God moving in us? Is God changing us? And there is no better use of our time than to be sure of that thing, sure of our salvation, right? And so, um, in fact, I think chapter 8 is Paul's version of how we can be sure. I think the whole intent of chapter eight is to confirm in the Christian's life the absolute certainty that there is no condemnation. It concludes with no no separation. And in the middle is like no defeat, right? We've talked about this over and over again. In fact, look at the end of chapter eight. This is kind of a sneak preview of, of more fun that we get to experience from Paul and his theology. But in verses 38 and 39, I think this is Paul's intention. He says, for I am sure, I'm sure that neither Death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else. And all of creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Paul is certain about the believer's salvation and certain about his destiny and hope. And that's why he writes chapter 8. So having dealt with the, uh, the reality that struggling Christians will not experience the condemnation of God because God condemned Jesus for us, And describing the differences between a believer and unbeliever, here I think what Paul does in these three verses we look at today, 9, 10, and 11, he helps establish what is a Christian. Like what are some true realities, authenticating marks of a believer's heart? And so the outline is real simple. If we take three verses, three points, Paul is talking about a believer's past, present, and future. As we look at it, I want you to continue to ask the question I left you with last week. Which are you? Which one of these things represent you? So let's back up and read verses 9 through 11 and uh, see what Paul has to say. You, however, are not in the flesh but in the Spirit, if, in fact, the Spirit of God dwells in you. Anyone who does not have the Spirit of Christ does not belong to him. But if Christ is in you, although the body is dead because of sin, the Spirit is life because of righteousness. If the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. In verse 9, Paul is still dealing with the differences between the believer and the unbeliever. And he says in the simplest, most clearest terms possible that a Christian is easy to spot. He's one who has the spirit of God in him. There is no other clear, certain way. In fact, you can't come to Christ with the Spirit of God in you because the Spirit of God is the one who draws. He's the effectual work of God to make an unbeliever who's blind and dead and can't perceive and changes his heart and his want-tos and his affections, right? The compass gets replaced. So once it was stuck on itself, it now turns towards the things of God. The Holy Spirit is the one who does that work. And Paul says here in verse nine, that's how you know you're a believer. The Spirit of God is in you. If you watch his logical argument here in verse nine, he says this, if you don't have the Spirit of Christ, you don't belong to him. You're not a Christian. If you do belong to Jesus, then you have the Spirit of Christ. And this this second conclusion is also true. If you have the Spirit of Christ, you will no longer be controlled by the flesh. You see his argument in verse 9? Very simple. You can't be a Christian without the Spirit. If the Spirit's in you, you're no longer controlled by this flesh outside part of us. So, in other words, let me just put it clearly for you. um, When God changes your heart, He transforms you. If... um, if we believe in Jesus and trust in his finished work on the cross, if we belong to him, we are forever changed. Not perfectly, obviously, but it's evident. Okay, now here's, here's the subtle difference. Some people would look at the charges of Paul about this transformation and think, well, I can't get there. And we've already seen Paul's argument in verse seven, or chapter 7 about the struggle between the body of flesh and the heart that loves God. But what I want you to know as you evaluate your life and your faith is is to evaluate the change. Because I've said this a thousand times, God doesn't save people, he doesn't transform. That, that person doesn't exist to claim Jesus and claim salvation and never see any change in their life whatsoever. We live now like we belong to Jesus. And there is transforming work in our life. So what Paul does in verse 9, reflecting on the past, he says we're not of the flesh anymore. Now, just to remind you of what we said about the flesh, and you can look at your life and see if this is there, but Paul says this flesh, it has the idea of this sensuous nature of man, his instincts, his will, his wants, his desires, apart from divine influence, right? That's the flesh. It's the selfish stuff. It's the proud and angry stuff, the worship ourselves kind of things, the feeding our appetites. That's who we were, according to Paul, before Christ, totally controlled by the flesh. And Paul says very clearly that that's not what we are anymore because we're controlled by the Spirit. So let me give you the wonderful punchline. It means that the endless cycle of habitual sin is over. That ongoing, I don't even notice it, I keep hurting myself and others, and I'm miserable in the process, that unbroken chain of sin you don't even notice, Paul says because of the Spirit working in you, it's done. You can't go on like that. So let me stop for a second and press you a little bit harder. If you don't see any change in your life whatsoever, then you don't belong to Him no matter what you say. And that might be a little bit cramped for you, but it's true. You you have to create another scenario to make it not true, that God would somehow leave heaven, come to earth, take on flesh, die on the cross for your sins, apply that work to your life, and you never, ever, ever act changed, ever. You don't see your sin. You don't call it what God calls it. You don't at least confess it or repent of it a lot. Like there's no change in your life if there is no change then the gospel is not yours and Jesus isn't your savior. That's what Paul says. It's as clear a crystal as it can be. You can even believe the right things we talked about last week, have a bulletproof theology and if you don't see change, the kind of change that only God can do, then it's not real. Can't be real. You can even have an outwardly controlled moral life and existence, and yet that's really common, right? That's the definition of religion. All around the world, there are people on their knees suffering deeply for things they think God will notice and go, okay, because you try and mean so well, I'll give you something like, like a hope for tomorrow. But we know this, that it's not because of some outward external thing. Paul has said it so precisely that we go from death to life indwelt by the Holy Spirit of God by faith alone, not by works, so no one can boast. That's the truth of the gospel. So that's verse 9, looking back at the flesh and what it produces and now what the Spirit of God produces us is life. Look at verse 10 when now Paul talks about our present condition. Verse 10, he says this, but if Christ is in you, Although the body is dead because of sin, the spirit is life because of righteousness. There are two aspects of this verse I think we've got to understand here to, to get Paul's point. There, the first one is the body is dead because of sin. What does he mean by that? Boyce suggests that the bodies um, carry around the seeds of death. and, and In other words, they, they, it's literal death that's coming and a death that we all already live into because of sin. Like the future's already determined, the body is dying, it's a consequence of sin. Um, in other words, We're as good as dead already. Our inclinations are towards evil and sin. The body is decaying. Everybody knows that. Who wouldn't argue? Uh, Who would argue with that? The second half of this verse that's important to understand is is what does Paul mean by the spirit of life because of righteousness? Um, What's confusing to me about this second phrase is the capitalized spirit in that sentence. Do you see it in verse 10? Where he says... um, the spirit is life because of righteousness, capitalized spirit. I, I think it should be a small s because I think what Paul is referring to is the life that God gives our spirit based on the work of the Holy Spirit in our life. When you read this with, with the Holy Spirit, as it, you've got the, the spirit of God's getting life. That, that can't sound right. And so I think it's better, better read this way. And I think the Amplified Bible makes it clear. Listen, listen to this version. But if Christ lives in you, then although your natural body is dead by reason of sin and guilt... The spirit, the spirit inside of us, is alive because of the righteousness that he imputes to us. Does that make sense? That's a logical line that we were dead in our sins and transgressions, which we understand from Romans chapter three, but God raised us to new life, raised our spirits from death to life. And we now perceive and love and, and, and adore different things than we did before. So let's stop for a second and ask a question. If Paul is talking about a believer's present condition and he describes it as life, or alive, then what are the signs of life? If we're going to just look at our own and ask the questions that I think Paul is kind of somewhat implying between the text here, are there signs of life in us? What are the ones that that we can trust, okay? If you're a little afraid of the journey, let me remind you that over and over again, Paul, the apostle, and, and, and the other disciples would encourage us to examine. Here is one of Paul's exhortations in 2 Corinthians 13 where he says, examine yourselves to see whether you are in the faith. Test yourselves, or do you not realize this about yourselves, that Jesus Christ is in you, unless indeed you fail to meet the test? That's the exhortation by Paul to say, listen, look, examine, Ask the questions. Don't be afraid of the journey because if you just kind of pie in the sky, out of mind, I go to church, I'm a good person, and you're, tr- you're trusting your future destiny and the fact that you feel good about it but it isn't real in you, then you've wasted your life. I love the way the message, Eugene Peterson paraphrased that same verse. Listen to what he says. Test yourselves to make sure you are solid in the faith. Don't drift along taking everything for granted. Give yourselves regular checkups. You need first-hand evidence, not mere hearsay, that Jesus Christ is in you. Test it out. If you fail the test, do something about it. I, I hope the test won't show that we have failed. But if it comes to that, we'd rather, uh, we'd rather the test showed that our failure than yours. We're rooting for the truth to win out in you. We couldn't possibly do otherwise. So that's what we want to do this morning for just a little bit. We want to do some assessing. I want you to be okay with it, okay? I want us to ask the Holy Spirit right now to, uh, to do some sifting in our hearts. I don't have the ability to look at you and go, well, you're a nice guy, but you're going to hell. I don't know that. If I did, this would be simple. But the Spirit of God does that. He does it precisely. And so I'm praying that he will use this text to deal with us. So can we pray together before we ask these questions? God, you're the lover of sinners' hearts. You proved it by coming in the person of Jesus Christ to redeem us. But sin is so, so deceptive, we are so twisted, our hearts are so dark, we can think we have you when there isn't real fruit. God, would your spirit now move at this time in our service to uh, confirm or confront our hearts, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. There have been many pastors, theologians over the years, many years, who have created lists of things that prove your salvation or disprove your salvation. Some have even created lists that that suggest these things don't prove or disprove it, right? But they look like the real deal. Like if you were to vote for things in your church, you'd pick these things, but they're not necessarily evidence of real faith. John MacArthur has a list that I want to borrow for today. Um, that he would say, these are the list of things that neither prove nor disprove genuine, authentic faith, okay? So let me just go through these and then I'll get to what I think is a a kind of a solid, biblical, bulletproof examination of legitimate conversion. And I'll give you that in just a second. Let's deal with this list first. These are not necessary signs of true conversion. One is visible morality. I'm gonna remind you of a, a story of the rich young ruler in Matthew chapter 19 Um, You don't have to turn there, but the story is about a man who came to Jesus and asked what I would consider one of the greatest questions, if not the greatest question of all time. What must I do to have eternal life? That's the question we asked you last week. Do you have it? And Jesus just simply said to him, listen, now you need to obey. Your life needs to look changed. You know, don't murder and don't commit adultery and don't steal and don't lie and honor your parents and on and on it goes, that Exodus 20 kind of 10 commandment look and the rich young ruler looked at Jesus and said, I, I've done that since I was knee high to a grasshopper. That's, I've got, that's my life. I've got my life wired. And then Jesus, being God, clearly knows that he didn't. And he goes after the very first thing in this man's life. His idol was his money. His God was his own joy and satisfaction apart from God. And so he says, okay, here's what you do. You want something else? Sell everything. Give it to the poor and follow me. And you know how that story finishes, right? The rich young ruler walks away sad. Why? Because what the gospel requires is no other gods before God. That's the first and greatest commandment. And this guy couldn't keep the first one. He thought he had it wired. He thought that he had some kind of morality that God would be impressed with or God would be proud of. And he would look at it and say, well, you've done so many good things your whole life. You've, you've held the line on this stuff. Ah, never mind. Come in. And yet, don't, doesn't the Holy Spirit change people? Doesn't the Holy Spirit make people who hate murder and hate lying and deceit and, and, and hate those? Of course he does. But here we have an example of a guy who could have those things wired but not be legitimately converted. So this is either, either a sign and proof or, or not of, of true conversion, that you're moral. Another sign that, that MacArthur says is intellectual knowledge. Intellectual knowledge. Uh, I love how Romans starts as Paul begins to build the case that we're all sinners And he suggests that people know there's a God by what has been made without excuse, right? Although they knew God. I I still, I know this is rare in our day, but the people I bump into are okay with the concept of God. Now, they struggle with Jesus big time. They struggle with authority. They struggle with sin and a need for a savior. Get that. But everyone's perceiving some version of a divine being. At least a lot of people are. Three-quarters of Americans say they believe in the Christian doctrines. They have at their essence, there is a God. But here's what the reality of what Paul says in Romans chapter 1. Although they knew God, they did not honor him as God, right? Nor give thanks to him. So just, just acknowledging the reality of some kind of series of truths doesn't help us. The third thing MacArthur says is religious involvement religious involvement. Now, I suppose if there is any group of people Jesus would consistently go after and punk, it would be the Pharisees, right? In chapter 23 of, of Matthew, there is this list, right? And it's called the woe to chapter. This is where Jesus sees the efforts and activities of the religious elite and he condemns it. He says, woe to you, right? Woe to you. You preach, woe to you. You teach, woe to you. You tithe, woe to you. They have all these things, these religious activities in their life, and he says, but you're full of dead men's bones. There's nothing real in you. So you could be sitting at, man, we've said this before, the greatest place to hide from God is in church. You can fool everybody because you're all involved doing all these things, but your heart's far from him. So just the fact that you're active here does not necessarily mean you're truly converted. He says this, another one. Active ministry, being active. Matthew chapter 7, this, this passage is uh, intense. Listen to it. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. But the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name? Do many mighty works in your name. And then, well, I declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. I wonder what that's going to be like. Now, maybe it's a morbid sense of curiosity to, to imagine the total shock and surprise for people who've given their life to religion and effort Who've got lists of things like preaching and teaching and service and giving, and, and they stand there with their things in their hands, thinking that that's the price to be paid to get to heaven, and Jesus says, no, you needed me. I don't know you. Clearly, you can be um, active in ministry. I wouldn't be surprised that there are pastors and preachers who end up in hell forever having worked their entire life under the, under the role and task of being a giver of good news, and they don't know. Like, clearly, Jesus has that in mind. How about this one? Conviction of sin. Conviction of sin. Now, that's got to be true Holy Spirit work, not necessarily. Conviction doesn't always lead to repentance. You understand that, right? Right? If if I just show you your greatest failure, if I could have a video and put it up on the screen just for a brief moment, if it could just flash up there, your head would go down, your face would grow red, and you would feel the weight of your life and decision. Conviction doesn't necessarily lead or mean that you're converted. There's a story in Acts um, twenty four where Paul has been arrested. Okay. He's been beat up and people are falsely charging him. They want him dead, right? The religious environment, the Pharisees, Sadducees want Paul dead. Now he has now declared himself a Roman citizen. He's now in the process of being assessed. what What are these charges? Is he guilty? And he ends up in front of Felix, the governor, okay? And he's in front of Felix. And Felix has this kind of morbid curiosity with the Christians, they're called the way, okay? This group of people, this sect of people, this growing brand new group of people who follow Jesus, who act different and love. and So Felix has got this kind of this notebook on Christians, and he's totally curious about Christians, so he starts to interview Paul. And in the process of interviewing, Paul talks about sin and Savior and Jesus and salvation and what God is doing, and the text tells us that Felix was alarmed Convicted. And what he said to Paul wasn't, hey, how do I find Jesus? He said, hey, man, get away from me. I can't deal with this. It's too much pressure. He was under the conviction that there's a true God who sees our sin, who we need a Savior from. He felt the weight of it. He was alarmed because of it. And his answer to that being alarmed was, get, get, get away from me. Give me some space so I don't have to feel it anymore. So you could be sitting here weekend after weekend and you could be hearing the gospel, the wonderful news that you can't and God can and that God sees all that stuff and sifts it precisely. He knows your motives and maybe something twists in your heart and you go, man, that, that's right and I'm guilty and I'm, I'm in trouble. You can feel that conviction and yet have no, no true conversion. Another thing he says is assurance. Assurance isn't necessarily a sign one way or another if you belong to Christ, There is that story um, that Jesus tells in in Luke chapter 18 of the Pharisee and the tax gatherer praying. Do you remember this story? And uh, I can't imagine anyone doing this or saying this, but the Pharisee, he said, God, I'm so glad I'm not like other men. (laughs) Like you should be glad I'm not like other men. The, the kind of the arrogance behind it. And Jesus compares and contrasts this man who said, I do all these things and I do it in your name and I'm, I'm right and I'm organized and I, I look great on the outside. And Jesus then compares it to the tax gatherer who's the dregs of society, who's just beating his chest, asking for mercy. And Jesus says of the two, this one's justified. The Pharisee's not, but the tax gatherer is. But the ta- I'm just telling you, the Pharisee was absolutely certain it was his. Is bulletproof. I've done all this my whole life. One more that MacArthur gives, and that is a time of decision. Time of decision. Um, how many people have you met who claimed Christ and walked away? Anybody? There isn't probably anything more humanly painful without trusting the sovereign hand of God than to watch a a loved one, a family member, a friend, a person you go to church with all these years who claimed at one time to follow Christ and then punted and walked away and left it behind, right? And yet, Jesus tells us about the parable of the soils that there are going to be people who flare up and show all sorts of signs of life only to have the worries of life and have the the fact that they are shallow people into their things walk away from their perceived Jesus, right? So you can even have people who say, I remember when, you know, and this is classically parental, by the way, Well, we have our kids who have a Bible somewhere where they wrote, I love Jesus at six. We so desperately want it to be true that it doesn't matter what they say or how they live, we just keep telling them you're saved, don't worry about it. Nothing could be farther from the truth or more damning than to give them salvation. The Holy Spirit does that, not, not us. If someone says, I don't believe it anymore, that's what you go by, and you pray for them. And you share the hope of Jesus with them, knowing that what they need is the same thing you got, divine intervention. They need a Holy Holy Spirit hostile takeover of the heart, right? He needs to transform them. So those are the lists that John MacArthur gives of kind of, you never know. Maybe they're signs of life, maybe they're not signs of life. Some of you are sitting here today using that list solely as your as your justification for why you're a believer. Now, in 1730, 1740, there was what was called in America the Great Awakening out on the East Coast. Jonathan Edwards, some consider the greatest mind America ever produced was preaching sermons ridiculous sermons weighty sermons like sinners in the hands of an angry god terrifying people that god is a holy god who will rightly judge sin and thousands of people were getting converted this is revival really true revival but at some point in time people were claiming christ and showing signs that edwards called false fire he would look at it and say, man, they're, sh- they're just all up and upside down, they're in fervor, but they're not legitimately converted. And so he wrote what I consider a very, very helpful um, list of um, distinguishing, this is his title, distinguishing marks of a true work of the Spirit of God. Now, lots of people have lists, and I've looked at a lot of the lists that people say that these are the bulletproof things in a converted life. Some of them I agree with, and some of them I don't. This one, I think you can't argue with because it's about affections. It's simply about how God transfers your heart stuck on you in sin and changes it towards the heart of God, okay? So we're just going to go through this list quickly. Would you just ask yourself whether these are in your life? The first thing that Edwards says is that you love Jesus. (laughs) Pretty simple, right? Pretty simple, first sign of when the Spirit of God resurrects our hearts, we view Jesus differently. Now, here's what I know of the people I've talked to about Christ. Nobody like that I've ever met in my life go, he was a bad guy, bad intentions, out to do harm. They would say things like, good prophet, great leader nice teacher. They would deny his claim to deity. They would not say he's God. They would not give him credit as savior of the world, but they at least respected him for some reasons. He shows up in the scriptures and here we are 2,000 years later and there's crosses everywhere. There was something to the guy. So they give him some respect. But here's what happens to the converted heart. It goes way beyond just admiring him for what he did. It's now a heart has changed to a heart of fear and awe and worship for Jesus. Christians delight in Jesus. Do you understand why we sing all these songs? you understand how easy the punchline is? Every one of them is Christ. Every one of them is Jesus. Sinners have nothing to say unless Jesus isn't the savior of sin. Amen? So, true Christians delight in Jesus, Edward says, in a way that is palpable and contagious. You see him as the creator, sustainer, savior, redeemer, God that he is. That's who he is. That's what he claims to be. He's not a good teacher. He's not a prophet. He's not those things. He claims to be God, come on a rescue mission for sin. And when the Holy Spirit changes your heart, you see him that way. You fall in love with Jesus that way. Second thing that Edwards describes is a hatred towards sin. Your eyes are open to the dreadfulness, hopelessness hopelessness of the condition of our hearts. I'm going to confess something to you. Before I saw the beauty of Jesus, I saw this in my own life. I think I'm still discovering, to be honest with you, at 52, I'm still discovering how wonderful Jesus is. As God reveals more and more of the truth, um, I'm discovering, and and I'm discovering more of my sin, the older I get. And uh, this is how God got my heart way back in the 80s, that far, long ago era, um, never before in my life had I felt the weight of the life I was living, ever. I mean, maybe you've been there. Maybe you're there right now. You just kind of bop your way through life and do what you want to do, and you have no thoughts, and you go to bed and get up do it again. Well, somewhere in my life, in in 1980, 1980, I couldn't do it anymore. I hit the proverbial wall. And this is how I describe it. God sat on my chest. I didn't know what to do with it. I mean, I sat in church my whole life. Three sermons every week, Sunday, Sunday night, Wednesday, all all that stuff. I had had been saturated in Jesus stuff because of being a pastor's kid. But for some reason, 1980, God said, and that's what your life is like. Now, it was only a snapshot. It was only one particular thing. It had had nothing to do with the fact that I would have another 30 years of continual sin or struggles. He just let me see what I was dealing with, and I couldn't breathe. I I, I think more clearly than anything else is that God allows true Christians to see their sin and hate it. Do you hate your sin, church? Do you hate your sin that lies to you and says you need it plus Jesus? (laughs) That's what it does to me. You'll be happy if, where once uh, you would call your sin flaws and weaknesses that just needed a little bit of time and information to get over, you now see them as, uh, as a description of a twisted, broken heart that's cold to God. That's what you see, right? Edwards adds another sign of true faith: that you love God's word. Paul in chapter seven was describing this tension, this war between the flesh and the spirit and and the struggle with sin. And he said this of himself in the midst of his struggle, with my heart, with my mind, I delight in the law of God. My flesh, I kind of wander off. I think the essence, another part of being truly converted is you look at this thing and you go, I love it. I I might not be in it 24 seven. I might not read it every day. I might not read chapters at a time, but... Man, there's times I feel thirsty, and this is the only thing that quenches it. Sometimes I long, and this is the only thing that fills it. It is the very words of God. It is perfect, it is infallible, and it is for my heart. That's how I see it, and that's what I think every believer, when the Holy Spirit transforms you, you long to hear your creator. And he's written his truth right here for all of us to see. One other thing he says It's kind of an addition to this word thing. It is that you love truth. Truth. So what the scriptures communicate, you fall in love with. That there is a God and he is great and he is just about sin and we're a sinner falling short of God's standard, but Jesus, Jesus dove into time and space to redeem sinners who by faith go free. That wonderful linear line of how people are made right with God, that is truth that we love, amen? And then the last thing he says is that we love believers. Jesus said this, and you can repeat it with me. Um, the greatest commandment of all is to love the Lord your God with what? Heart, soul, mind, and strength. Let, let, paraphrase, everything you got. You love him with everything you got. And how do you prove that? How do you live that out? You love your neighbor as yourself. The automatic compass change direction of the human heart, when God transforms it, it chooses to show its affections, God's affections and grace on other people, and primarily the body of Christ. This, brothers and sisters. I mean, that's kind of corny. We don't use it. I don't say, hey, hey, brother Bill, or hey, brother Bob. I I don't do that. Sister Sue, I, I don't say that stuff. But legitimately, as far as God's concerned, that's how we relate to each other. We bear one another's burdens. We pray for one another. We encourage one another. We serve together our crippled way as we see the day approaching of Jesus Christ's redemption for us, right? That's what we know. So if you're one of those people who faithfully, faithfully sits in a redemption community and tells brothers and sisters about the wonderful cause of Christ in your life, that's a sign of life. If you're heading off to children's ministry to teach the little three-year-olds that Jesus lives, that's the love for the brothers. If you're one of those true dads who last weekend gave up money and time to work your tail off for these kids sitting under the teaching of the Lord, that's what this is. If you're one of those people who faithfully serves in the Exodus groups, all the people who are hurting to see God's grace, that's what it is. What I'm saying is real simple. True Christians serve their fellow brothers and sisters out of a response to the grace of God that they've received. Now, stand back and look at the list. Love for Jesus, hatred towards sin, a love for his word, a love for truth, and a love for brothers and sisters at some level growing in your life. That's what Paul says. So let me ask you these questions, kind of a negative in reverse fashion. If Jesus isn't real to you, if he isn't your delight and your motivation. If sin is just a shortcoming that you just need a little bit more time and opportunity to grow out of, if the Bible isn't attractive to you and if you're not drawn to other believers, why would you call yourself a Christian? The gospel is really clear. God saves us who can't save themselves. The Holy Spirit begins a process of transforming us into the image of Jesus that won't be finished until we meet him in glory, but there will be change some change. And I think if you assess your affections, then you're going to find whether Jesus is in your heart. What do you love? What do you hate? Real simple, real simple. So be encouraged, church. Paul wrote this to tell you that God changes you, that God redeems your sinful, broken heart, and he gives you no condemnation because he condemned Jesus for you. That there will never be anything that can separate you from the love of God, because you don't hang on to him, he hangs on to you. And in the process of you growing into Christ, he will develop you and change your character and your demeanor. There will be no defeat. There is no sin that can make you do anything. Amen? So, one more encouragement. Verse 11. I'll briefly mention it. Watch this. Now, I think this is written in response to the fact that Paul said in verse 10, our body is dead. Because of sin, watch what he says about our bodies. Now in verse eleven, if the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, now here's hope to look forward to, church. He who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. Somebody say amen to that. Here's what we get to look forward to: that war that exists right now someday is going to be completely over. God is going to glorify our bodies. Watch what the apostle says in. Uh, 1 Corinthians 15, in a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound, and the dead will be raised imperishable, and shall be changed. For this perishable body must be put on the imperishable, and the mortal body must put on immortality. When the perishable puts on the imperishable, and the mortal puts on immortality, then shall come to pass the saying that is written, death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? Okay, I'll wait for you to smile. You'll catch that later. <laughs> he says in Philippians three, our citizenship is in heaven, and from it we wait a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body to be like His glorious body by the power that enables Him even to subject all things to Himself. Right. He's talking about an absolute future expectation of the resurrection of these dead bones to align with the heart that he's already resurrected. That one day, there will be no more sin, no more death, no more struggle, no more disappointment, right? Bodies without scars, fully in love and engaged with Jesus. That's good news, church. You want to be encouraged? God is taking care of everything. Everything. There's nothing you have to do, nothing you have to worry about. Faith alone and Jesus alone equals new life in heart and a future life of this crippled up, broken up, twisted, warring with my spirit self. Amen? Amen. So the short of this passage, the past is over. That endless cycle of habitual sin is done because God has given us life. The present life of a believer is affections, love for God, love for Jesus, love for his word, love for truth, love for believers, and hatred towards sin. And the ultimate end of it is that believers have a resurrected glory to look forward to. Somebody say amen to that. Amen. 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 Let's pray together. God, I thank you for Jesus. This stuff would be absurd without a Savior. There'd be no hope for us if Jesus wasn't real for us. So God, we celebrate him today. We celebrate him even now in communion. Celebrate the fact that nothing can separate us from your love, in height, or depth. Anything on earth or in heaven will ever separate us from the love of Jesus. God, I pray that the church is encouraged by this. I pray it in Christ's name. Amen.